Hello and welcome to today's episode of SBC This Week, a weekly roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. Today we have a very special episode for you. I'm joined by Amy Whitfield and our very special guest, Dr. J.D. Greer. How are you, Dr. Greer? I'm doing fine. Thank you guys for having me on. So first of all, thanks again for joining us, uh, and we're, we're glad to have you on. Uh, we, we've had you on before in the past, and uh, we appreciate you coming back. Would it break protocol if you just call me J.D. from this point on, or do I, we need to get stick I can with do the that. I can do okay. that. Right. Yeah, we can. So, J.D., We've seen tremendous increases the past few years of uh, CP giving and are on pace right now for our first $200 million CP annual giving in more than a decade. If you're elected, how would your presidency help continue this trend? Yeah, so I feel like there's kind of probably three different um, ways that that we're going to see it um, go up. I mean, the first way is simply uh, casting a a vision for cooperative giving in a new generation. Um, I mean, certainly our our older legacy churches need to be spurred to give and to give more, but we just got a vast, we got a rising generation. You look out at the audience of the Southern Baptist Convention and you got a lot of (coughs) guys that um, are uh, that are just never really engaged in any significant way because there's all kinds of things uh, pulling at their um, their investment and their giving. So I think just recasting that as one of the things I'm hoping to do as president. I'm you know 45 years old. I'm not really in the younger generation anymore, unfortunately. But if I identify enough with that generation to say, here's how our church has done it. Here's how we've increased it. Here's why we think it's a good investment. And here are the, the benefits of it. You know, one of the things I'm always, um, I kind of trumpet to our generation is that whole um, need for movements and institutions, that institutions you know, without movements are dead, but movements without institutions like staying power and say, you know, we can give to whatever's kind of hot right now and whatever's grabbing the headlines and, you know, whatever uh, community blessing project pulls at the heartstrings of our people. But if we want to have long-term sustained growth and impact, then, you know, something that at least has the institutions of the, the seminaries and the IMB and the North American Mission Board and state conventions, that's what to do. Well, the second part of that is I think state conventions um, have to re-present themselves and explain why they're the right vehicle to give to cooperative giving. I mean, there's a lot of churches that are electing to um, bypass traditional structures and just go straight to the IMB or straight to um, Nashville, you know, representing the executive committee and you know, Southern Baptists in the past have recognized that societal giving, where you just pick your favorite entity and give to that, is not a it's not a healthy, sustainable thing for for churches. And so, I think state conventions have to. Uh, it used to just sort of be assumed because you just didn't really know the people in Nashville, and it was so far away that you just but you knew your state guy. Well, now with the flatness of our world, you you don't have that anymore. So you've got to you know state conventions have to represent themselves. I've seen some really encouraging. Um, you know, signs of that. I mean, um, Milton here, Milton Holyfield in, in North Carolina, and I've become good friends. And uh, there's a lot of things um, in the state convention that we're involved with. Uh, they have represented themselves to North Carolina churches. Um, guys like Tommy Green in Florida um, have been really good because they've demonstrated even just the way that they've shifted the percentages that, hey, your giving here is not supposed to be a, a stop into uh, enlarging a state convention as much as it is by, you know, going through the state convention um, to that. So I, I think that's one. And I, I also think my third thing there is we've got to, um, we just, we, we've got to keep preaching cooperative giving and allow a little freedom in churches in how they're choosing to do it. Um, I, I don't mean by that, that I want to just say, Hey, everybody, you know, there's, there's no genius in the cooperative program, but I know that especially for a younger generation, the more that you say, this is the way you must do it. Um, the less 
um, impact. So I think we have the ability to present this, compel it, and I think good days are ahead if we'll if we'll walk forward with an awareness at least of of um, of, of what this new generation is thinking. Excellent. All right. So let's turn to a different question that's important for uh, thinking about SBC president. Uh, that role. So the issue of diversity of appointments and nominations continues to be a discussion in the SBC. It has been for a few years. We've had task forces, reports on it. This year, a lot of people are talking about it. What do you think we could do strategically as a convention to increase diversity at the denominational level? Right. When you look at the statistics, it actually is really encouraging how many people of color make up the membership of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, I, you know, I was, I was, I was actually surprised by it. Um, what is not there, what is not proportionate is the amount of people in leadership. And I, I don't think that has been like ill-intentioned, like, you know, oh, let's, let's only keep, you know, white men in power. I don't think that's been the spirit of it, but I do think that there's been a negligence on our part, um, to, to see our boards and our leadership positions and our entity heads, represent the diversity of the Southern Baptist Convention and honestly, Amy, a diversity that we need, not just for sake of witness going forward, although I think that's significant, but our brothers and sisters of color have a wisdom that comes from their experience that we desperately need in the days to come. I mean, um, it's not like an act of charity where we're saying, okay, we'll share and it's your turn now, um, as much as it is saying, um, in order for us to be sensitive, I mean, right now, I mean, unless your head is totally in the sand, we've just got a lot of things that are coming at um, accusations coming at the SBC of, of blindness to abuse and a blindness to injustice and in the name of complementarianism, actually um, discouraging the participation and the leadership of women. And I'm a full-blown complementarian, so don't you know hear any kind of hedging on that, but just you know not recognizing that complementarianism, you can believe that and still believe in, in, in women being empowered to, to lead in the church. Well, the, one of the reasons that we're blind to that, Amy, is because we don't have, um, you know, uh, racial diversity and gender diversity as much in our leadership. Um, because I, I'm just not as aware as a white male of certain things as people who've grown up in that has. So um, I feel like you know it's it's something that if you're president, it should be. I mean, you should, you never want to put somebody in a position that they're not qualified for and that they're not uh, among the very best candidates for it. But um, I think we can we can we can honor the integrity of the office and say I think this is something whose whose time has come. So uh, you know, on the six things that I've listed out as being priorities for me if I became Southern Baptist Convention president, um, that's number two. They're not really in order. Um, like of importance, but um, number two is is that we we see racial and cultural diversity, and, and I would add gender diver- gender diversity in our in our leadership. That's really helpful. And and asking, kind of following up on what you were saying about women participating, you know, a lot of times, and and uh, I, I've been in conversations where this can be a challenge before. Language matters, and a lot of times when we talk about leadership with respect to women. Um, the fear is that we're thinking pastoral leadership. Can you sort of address that, some of that, the question that can come and why it's important to still include women uh, and help women develop as leaders, uh, but without necessarily, you know, I guess in, in handling that particular conversation? I'll really speak, um, Amy, here out of the context of leading in a local church because church and convention aren't identical, but um, there's a lot of overlap. And well, we've, um, we, we, again, let me just emphasize, we are unashamedly complementarian. That's not even for us like a kind of a secret closet we're embarrassed about of like, oh, well, we got to, you know, check that box. And 
make sure we don't get that, um, you know, violate anything there. We believe it's God's design. We believe it's a beautiful design and it's a helpful design. And that in the home and in the church, particularly, God has appointed men to be pastor elders in the church and then also to be the, the head of the home. But um, what we realized is that I would say, I mean, relatively innocently, what that meant for us at the church was it was kind of a boys club when it came to, to leadership. And uh, it's just, you know, we just kind of really showed up in two ways. One is not just in pastoral positions, but pretty much every position we look for a guy. And the second thing is um, we had, uh, I don't mind saying so myself, some really good and impressive leadership development programs at the summit church that were almost exclusively populated by guys. Now we had women doing women's ministry and, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, but we just, we didn't have nearly the equivalent. And we realized that that was a wrong application of complementarianism. Uh, so we did a couple of things. One, we, we just, um, our elders of our church, who are all men, of course, um, with the consultation of a lot of female leaders, we came up with a document that just explained complementarianism and women's empowerment. We explained how um, just about every gift in the in the New Testament is available to men and women. Um, the office of pastor is not, and pastor elder, but the, the gift is. And so how can we identify those gifts and develop them just like we do men? Then we went through our entire, um, our entire staff structure. And we just said, we want to ask about every position. Could this position be redefined if it's a pastoral position as a non-pastoral position in a way that a woman could do it? And a lot of them were. Um, now, some of them weren't. We got a few things you like, no, a pastor needs to do that. But we had several that were like, I, I don't see, there's no reason why a woman couldn't exercise a leadership gift, um, just not in the in the office as pastor. She, um, at that point, is, you know, under the authority of the of the elders, um, which, of course, I am too. But, you know, just, uh, it's, it, it's just a different way of approaching it. And I feel like that same thing should happen at pretty much all levels of our of our convention is how do we preserve and honor complementarianism, but also seek the, I don't know what the exact number is. You probably do Amy, but um, with the exact number of female to male in the, in the SBC, but how do we tap into this incredible gift that God has given us and in our, our sisters? I also have three daughters who are incredibly yeah. smart and already, I feel like on their way to becoming great leaders. So I'm, I'm already thinking, I'm thinking about them. So yeah, it's it's fifty one percent women, forty nine percent men at the last Pew study, two thousand fourteen, and Amy reminds me of that often. Yep. Not that <laughs> not right. that I have those She's memorized. George there. She's chairman of the Just board. Just a little ahead. Yeah. Yes. Yes. All right. So hey, whenever you first got to Homestead Heights, two thousand two, you started I'm there. With that name. Huh? I'm impressed you know that name. Well, uh, you know, we've we've got some uh, documentation from back in the day. We do our research. First got there. Yeah. So right. it's a great little uh, newsletter that that you used to put out. Um. <laughs> I don't. If there are pictures that go along with that, they um they are banned from all public display. Okay. We well, actually, that's part of the graphic for this episode. Yes. Is the yeah. I think I mean this kind of follows along with the previous question about diversity. Whenever you got there, not just in a in a racial or cultural uh, element, but Homestead Heights. I mean, it was a, a monocultural and homogenous type of Southern Baptist church, and a lot of churches were that way. I mean, there right. were there were a lot. I mean, like. Southern Baptist churches for a long time were strictly homogenous churches, but over the past 15, 20 years, things have really changed. Now we're, you know, more heterogeneous now. How, you know, what have you learned since, you know, 2002 being there and obviously previous to that at IMB with missionaries overseas, what have you learned about how we need to change and how to reach people in 2018 as churches have changed to become more heterogeneous? 
Yeah, I mean, a great question. I, I don't feel like we're on the other side of that one where we're not ready to write books and teach seminars on it. Um, I do think that what we've seen is that as God has grown the diversity of our church, it's been important that that grow out of a diversity in our relationships. Uh, Martin Luther King has that famous statement that um, 11 to 12 on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. I heard a guy say, and I thought this was really profound, he said, that's actually not true. The most segregated hour in America is five to six every evening for dinner, that our, our dinner tables are the least diverse, and that if we're going to have a multicultural event like a church service, then that needs to grow out of multicultural lives. Um, for I, for me, as I have begun to have relationships, peer relationships, not pastor to congregant or even pastor to staff member relationships, but peer relationships, that's where I've really grown, I think, in some understanding of sensitivity and and uh, awareness of questions that were being asked. That's not to say that everything that's coming out of the, um, you know, the, the, the not every opinion held in a, in a community of color is going to be right. And mine, you know, if it's different, going to be wrong. It just means that there's an awareness of, of questions that are being asked that has been helpful for me to, um, to understand and to, and to, and to lead out of, um, you know, I think that, that, uh, I heard a guy say this, he said, um, tokenism is when you want well, to use African-Americans, um, in particular, but, um, I think it would apply to all races. He said, tokenism is when you want a black face, but not a black voice. Um, I, my friend Vance Pittman, who has a marvelous, in fact, maybe one of the best in the entire SBC that I know of in terms of multicultural church out in Las Vegas. Um, uh, Vance says, he says, a lot of people say they want a multicultural church when what they actually want is a multicolored church with a bunch of people of different colors all acting like they're in your culture. He said the definition of a multicultural church is that sometimes you feel uncomfortable because it's not according to your particular cultural preference. And if you're not uncomfortable in your church, it means you're probably not multicultural. You're just you're multicolored. Uh, that's been a big thing for us to learn. So it's, uh, you know, I think especially for those of us in the majority community, it's to, to listen twice as much as we talk. Doesn't mean we never speak, but we're quick to hear and slow to speak. Um, if there were ever a place to apply that verse, um, than it would be, I think, in this situation uh, here. So anyway, that, those are some things. I'd be happy to go farther on that if you if you want, but that's it. Nope, I think that's good. All right, let's, uh, let's turn a little bit and think about, you know, we just talked about how to reach people in 2018. How can the SBC, both maybe at the church level, but also at the denominational level, best utilize technology to reach people? Because things are really different than they used to be, and we're trying to make that that transition now. How can we do that? You know, again, I thought we've experienced that in our church. Um, probably, I can't remember the exact statistic, but I think it's 60-ish percent of our adults are under the age of 35 here at our church. Um, so we got a lot of, of younger um, people. And just the way that they the way that they give, the way they connect, the way they hear things, um, you know, if, if you're going to get a message to them, it's not down traditional paths. And I'm actually a little bit slow. I'm kind of a late adopter on a lot of this stuff. So um, I'm kind of behind it. But we've just seen, um, you know, even like just yesterday, we had a long discussion about ways that people used to give and that they are giving. And um, yeah, I know that if we're going to be an effective mission mobilization organization, connecting people to needs around the world, connecting people to churches, connecting people to opportunities, um, it's going to take a, a pretty, you know, significant rethinking of some of our sites. And, um, I do, you know, there's some organizations out there that are doing it well. I won't, won't cite them here, but, um, you know, there's sometimes getting signed up or getting connected to a need that Southern Baptist are connected to is like talk to nine people, fill out three forms, click a website, get a re- And it's just like you go to other places and you click one button and bam, you can't 
seem to get their alerts off your phone, you know, of them telling you what's going on. So, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff like that that we could rethink through. And I think there's some very talented people um, out there that can they can do it. So uh, one follow up on that. How has the increase in technology and, and just the ability that you have at the summit to do different things helped with the summit network, uh, the planning of the, the churches, uh, the, all that you're doing there, sending out of missionaries? How, how has it really kind of, I guess, facilitated that better than, say, if you were 20 years ago, 15 years ago when you first got there. Yeah, it's just the, you know, flatness of the world. That's, you know, concept people talk about. You're not a flat earther, about. are you? That's the second time you said that. You're not a flat, flat. earth guy, are I'm you? I'm a flat earth guy. Oh, okay. That's right. That's right. And you know what? That whole moon landing thing was fake. Uh, Did you know that? <laughs> wow, you heard it here. Yeah, people are going to believe you. That's the funny thing. Yeah, okay, so that's a joke. I, I, I don't believe the moon landing was fake, and I do believe the world is round. But flatness of the earth is a concept that Thomas Friedman uses. Um, it's called The World is Flat. It's a great book. Uh, it's probably it's probably a few years dated now, but um, a few years ago he came out with it and basically said that the way technology had done things is it had removed geographical distances as the barrier they used to be and how people connect and even the affinities that they feel. Um, you know, we still have a lot of relationships with churches that are local and community it kind of by definition needs to be local because I need to be able to run over to somebody's house and not just, you know, check in on, online. Um, but it does mean that when it comes to an affinity network, I've got some guys, um, some pastors that we partner together that we would never have been able to do it 20 or 30 years ago just because of the of the the breakdown in communication. Um, what what does that mean for a local association? What's it mean for a state convention? What's it mean for how we can, I, I don't know. You know, I know, it doesn't mean they go away. It just means that they're thinking more about, about points of connection. When you ask somebody, when you ask the average pastor today who they're connected to, they'll probably give you a couple people locally, but probably eight out of 10 people on their list are going to be people that they connect to other ways. You know, you speaking of that, the pastors and their their networks and, and knowing people, uh, we're kind of moved to leadership now. There's been a lot of recent change in leadership in the SBC. How do you see the leadership transition in the SBC continuing to play out over the next five to 10 years and, and it's important in its importance in the future of the SBC? Well, I mean, we are at a key, right? I, I mean, a very key moment. Our executive committee is currently absent and our international mission board is in transition. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, one of our uh, seminary presidents has just stepped down, and and so I mean these are major institutions that 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 shape the future of uh, of the SBC. And I know the president doesn't choose those by any means. It's not like the Supreme Court, but we you know I do think there's there's a there's a rising generation. There's a um, a set of priorities, missional priorities, and doctrinal commitments that I think um, you know really need to come forward. I, I, I'm struggling a little bit with here with exactly. We are, are pretty agreed on our mission and I, our doctrine. We never want to take that for granted, and we never want to, um, you know, allow mission creep to come in where the Great Commission is not first and foremost what we do. We also don't want to take theology for granted because that's how you know liberalism grows in. So I don't want everyone to think that. But you know, I would say that Southern Baptists, on the whole, are are fairly united on. I have just haven't heard a lot of disagreement on the Baptist faith and message, you know, 2000 and in a while, at least it's not the hot topic. I do think there are some cultural things that we've got to um, think about, you know, going into the future. Uh, I mean, just the heartbreaking stuff over the last couple of weeks that have just come out and I've just you know pointed to some, there are some issues that we have in terms of, of, um, you know, leadership privilege and, and uh, how we um, handle cases of, of um, abuse and what we're doing you know, with gender and racial diversity and, and those kinds of things. It really seemed like a, you know, a Kairos moment where the Holy Spirit is saying, um, now your doctrine's good, your, 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 your mission is good, but um, there's some, 
some genuine cultural things. I mean, just the 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 slate of of um, uh, sexual immorality things that have come out in the last few days, um, very public things where people are, you know, being removed from office. It's it, it just it has to. It feels to me like. Like we have to recognize the spirit of God is doing something that speaks to the culture that we have. And I'm not trying to point the finger at anybody in particular. Say I, I'm a part of it. And we've got to be a gospel people, not just in doctrine, but a gospel people in, in spirit um, toward one another. And that means a commitment to protect the vulnerable and empower the uh, empower the weak. We're also in a world that is in major transition, changing a lot. Uh, you just talked a little bit about flatness of the earth, which I'd like to say I knew what you were referring to. I was familiar well, with I that did book. Too. I was just, you know, <laughs> I just just making I, sure because you know, just like like to make that clear. We wanna, since, we wanna, you know, you know, I don't often break news on SBC this week, but if if uh-huh. JD Greer is a flat earther, that will be news. Yes, but he's not. <laughs> right. so. so thinking worldwide. How do all the changes in global uh, geopolitical environment, how, how does that affect our missions work? How does that affect our strategy to reach the ends of the earth? Um, the world is really different. Technology is part of that. Uh, political changes uh, between nations, that's part of it as well. How do we go into a world that is different than it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago and do the best we can to reach the nation? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, two things come to mind quickly on this one. Um, number one is um, this is not this is not breaking news by any means. But what we recognize, if you take a map of world poverty, a map of malaria um, mm-hmm. problems, you know, death by malaria and a map of world evangelization and lay them on top of each other, the poverty places, malaria places, and the least evangelized places are all the same areas. Wow. And it, it shows you that there are some entry points into there that, that are significant that we ought to be taking advantage of, that it's not necessarily just seminary trained person who's going in a traditional, you know, traditional route. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I believe that's still one of the most viable and important missionary roles, but it means that there are, there are other ways, um, doing that. I read this article, um, Amy, a while back, that was talking about how if you add up all the evangelical missionaries of every denomination that would be even remotely evangelical, the number is 40,000 that are in the 1040 window in you know the least reached area there. 40,000 missionaries. And that's awesome. We need 10 times that many. If you take the number of Americans um, who are working in so-called secular employment in the 1040 window, that number is 2 million. Wow. Right. So take that two million and let's assume that just like stats in the United States, 30 percent identifies born again, right off two thirds of them as Mm -hmm. like not really that serious about their faith. Just 10 percent of that two million. If they knew how to be disciple making disciples, your missionary force in the great in the window would go from 40,000 to 240,000 without spending another dime. So I'd like that has got to be taken advantage of, you know, that kind of the fact, you know, when I say to our people uh, on the weekends, you know, when you see churches planted in, you know, ex Middle Eastern, there's there there's there's a couple dozen people that are on their way that week for business, you know, that are headed in, in those areas. Mm-hmm. And so we've really worked at trying to develop a pipeline, not just for the traditional vocational missionary, but a pipeline to equip business people to as they're going to carry the gospel with them. So that's kind of number one. Number two is the IMB has rightfully over the last several years, they've they've rightfully focused on UUPGs, unengaged, mm-hmm. unreached people groups. And we want to keep doing that. However, what we're realizing is that some of these countries that are the hardest to get to are not as hard for other 
Christians from other nations to get to as they are for us. Sometimes that's political ramifications. Sometimes it's just cultural. And what we um, have seen, and you know, some of the IB leadership um, has, has said this, is that there are brothers and sisters in other countries who could get in there easier. What for us as a window is more for them a door. And that some of our mission work might be coming behind them, empowering them, and um, you know, being in a supportive role to them as, as they go. And I think that's got to change a little bit of our strategy because it, it doesn't mean that we uh, disengage with UUPGs. It just means that part of our strategy ought to be how do we equip believers in, um, like in the Philippines. The Philippines are more of a reach nation, but the Philippine Christians are really actually good at being able to get into um, Malaysia and Indonesia and some of those places in ways that, that we can. And so we can take a supportive role um, helping them and empowering them um, as they go into some of these areas that are not as easy for us. I think we uh, tend to be a little discouraged right now because some of what's going on with some of our most cherished leaders. And um, I think we um, it's very sobering. And I think God is trying to get our attention. Uh, but. You know, what is encouraging to me in this is that the Lord chastens those that he loves. And God doesn't convict of sin in order to condemn. He convicts of sin in order to be able to um, free us from it and uh, and walk in, in blessing and, and prosperity. And I sense that as painful as this chapter is, that God is cleaning house. And he's telling us to be sober about sin in our own lives. Let no hint of sexual immorality be named among you. I think each of us, I think every pastor ought to be, this ought to raise awareness in their life and look in and say, me and, and this, our staff and our church, are we walking in purity before God? And do we have the safeguards that are in place to be able to um, not ensure purity, but at least, you know, um, be able to, to foster it? Um, you know, I think that, that some of these culture things that we've talked about when it comes to uh, the roles that minorities and women have in uh, a good representation in our leadership, I think we've got to acknowledge that and we've got to repent of it where necessary and, and pledge ourselves to it. Um, you know, I think when it comes to uh, realizing that we haven't uh, acted wisely when it comes to questions of abuse and how we um, do that, I mean, there's a I don't want to bow up at that. I want to be you know, humble and say we need to learn. We need to be you know, repentant. In it. And I think that, yeah, we need to, you know, the Bible tells us that if we confess our sin and we will adopt a posture of humility before God and listen to what he's saying, that God will lead us to righteousness and he'll lead us to a land of blessing. Um, but if we harden ourselves to it, we wouldn't be the first people in history that God set aside and chose somebody else. And our institutions are amazing, but God does not need them at all. He said, I can raise up children of Abraham from the stones if I needed to. I don't need you. And so if we will take a posture of humility and say, God, we, we're listening, um, then God, you know, our Savior, can, can lead us not just out of the, the wilderness of some of this, these moral crises. He can also lead us to, I think, a whole new um, generation, a whole new promised land, so to speak, of, of blessing. I know it's very cliche to say I think the greatest days of the Southern Baptist Convention are ahead of us, but I really believe that, and I believe part of the evidence of it is what we're going through now. God is chastening us for the purpose of effectiveness in the future. And so um, I'm here, I'm in, and I'm, I'm listening, trying to listen to God and what he's saying in my life, and um, I'm trying to believe in what he wants to do with us um, in our future for the purpose of the Great Commission. All right. Thank you so much for sitting down talking to us uh, today and I know our listeners appreciate it as well. Great opportunity to get to know you and some of your thoughts and we will see you in Dallas. See you in Dallas.